and welcome to the Sunday Salon, the podcast that celebrates brilliant books and the women who write them. It's my ninth isolation cast and I have such a brilliant guest for you today. It is Dr. Alison J. McGregor, an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Warren Alpert Medical School at Brown University. Alison is also the co-founder and director of the university's Division of Sex and Gender and Emergency Medicine and the author of Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What We Can Do About It, a fascinating examination of how women have long been and still are shortchanged in healthcare. Taking in everything from the way in which scientific studies have long neglected the differences in how the sexes respond to medication, to the fact that traditional diagnostic symptoms, for instance for heart attack and stroke, don't include how these diseases can manifest in women, and much, much more, it's an absolutely riveting and essential read. As you can imagine, she was totally fascinating to speak to. We discussed all of this, as well as how COVID-19 has impacted her work in an emergency department, the struggles with PPE, and why the coronavirus has only underscored the urgency of recognising the role of sex in medicine. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Alison, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. I'm just thrilled to be part of your podcast because you're celebrating women. And I just think that that's a wonderful thing to support. Well, that's very kind of you to say. And we are speaking, of course, over the internet, as I have been doing with my podcast recently. And before we kick off, I wonder if I can ask a little bit about where you are and what your sort of quarantine experience has been like? I am um, in Providence, Rhode Island in the U.S., and it's a very small state, um, and I work clinically as an emergency medicine physician in uh, the emergency department. So it's the major level one trauma center for Rhode Island. And I've been basically doing my research and my advocacy and teaching at home like everybody else now. And then I just basically leave the house to go to the emergency department to see patients. Um, And it's been interesting and challenging because this has been very unprecedented, obviously, and it's a teaching hospital. So I um, oversee teaching of medical students and residents and uh, advanced practice providers. And they're all looking to the attendings, the their supervisors, for um, guidance on how to deal with all of these new changes and wearing all of the personal protective equipment. And it's been the first time for us too. So we, we're all figuring this out together. Um, and uh, I'm just sort of glad that now the um, increase in patients have, are coming in um, that don't have uh, COVID-related illnesses. So for a while, we were seeing, um, you know, the message of stay home was was very intense. And so lots of people with their chronic illnesses and their heart attacks and strokes uh, were too afraid to seek emergency care. And so we, we were worried about them. And, and now we've, we've started to see them come back in and, um, and take care of uh, everybody. That's interesting. We've had a, we've had a similar problem with people not reporting to hospitals and certainly accident and emergency uh, wards, seeing many many fewer people. And our messaging has has only recently switched to be slightly less um, strict. So it'll be interesting to see how that changes. Um, you mentioned the personal protective equipment. Have you had the supplies that you need? How's your capacity 
been and and have you been overwhelmed by patients or 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 that in any any way well the ppe issue has been one that has changed i would say daily but it could even be hourly basis at the hospital and it's been dependent upon supply prior to this pandemic i would wear a mask or an n95 or surgical mask uh, with each uh, patient and each patient encounter and uh, without thinking that there wouldn't be enough supply to be able to do that. So um, to go from that to having to uh, use the same one over and over again until it gets visibly soiled or torn was quite a adjustment. And it was, you know, created some anxiety for the healthcare workers. We're at a point now where um, we do have more than that, um, but not quite to where we were prior to this happening. And has it been emotionally and mentally difficult being in that environment during this pandemic? I can only assume it, it must have been. I mean, of course, as a medical professional, you are well used to dealing with difficult circumstances, but but this is surely unprecedented. Yes, it's you know, we pride ourselves in the emergency department. Um, You know, anyone who deals with acute care, we're there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are ready for anything that comes in the door. And that's, that's been our training. That's, that's what we do um, on a regular basis. However, now when we arrive to work, we, we don't even recognize each other. People that we've worked with for 10, 15 years, the same nursing staff and physician colleagues, uh, we are wearing masks and eye shields and then a, um, a shield over all of that and outerwear. And it's just, um, there's a burden to dress in that way um, and try to care for patients without um, touching them and without getting exposed. Um, but then there's, you know, it's just, there's an added stress and a lack of personalization um, where we used to enjoy connecting with patients and connecting with each other and holding hands and speaking to families. And all of that has just, um, has has changed. And I, I, I really hope that we get to a different place. I, I don't want this to be our new norm. And this may sound like a stupid question, so apologies if it is, but are you seeing many COVID patients in the emergency department? Do you have a triaging system for us sort of separating or, or, or do you not really see COVID patients in that situation? No, we do. We, we are seeing um, everyone. And so we've set up certain areas of the emergency department as um, areas where uh, potentially COVID positive patients cohort. So we try to cohort those that we think likely could have it um, until we can adequately do the testing and um, and do further assessment. But the reality is we, we understand that anyone can be COVID positive. So if you come in after a car accident, um, you could potentially be positive in spreading the virus. Mm. So there is that sense that everyone is a potentially uh, COVID-19 positive patient, and we are trying to do our best to not catch the infection ourselves and not to spread it to other patients. But if you seem to be actively having symptoms that are consistent with a more severe illness, then you're treated in a separate area of the emergency department. Of course, it's very interesting because one of the things that we have learned about the coronavirus is that it would appear to 
affect men more severely than women. There certainly seems to be a higher rate of uh, male ICU admission. Uh, so suddenly the idea of uh, sex discrepancies in medicine is, is very much at the forefront of people's minds, it's in the headlines, but your book deals with the myriad other ways that sex matters, to use the title. I wonder what first made you interested in this subject? What was your sort of, I suppose, light bulb moment as to when you started to clock quite how staggering the discrepancies were? Because, I mean, we'll discuss we'll discuss a few of them, but, but there are just so many ways in which our sex governs uh, our symptoms for different illnesses, how we respond to treatments, how we experience pain, and, and, and so many other things. It is. It's throughout the entire understanding of our medical care. To back up to how I became involved in this understanding, uh, you know, I was always interested in women's issues and uh, women's rights, and you know, I followed all of the uh, feminist movements and um, read about them with fascination and. Um, you know, then I had to really uh, study for, to get into medical school and finish all of my training. And then I came to the point where I finished my residency training and I wanted to work in an academic institution. So uh, Brown University is, is where I'm at now. And in order to be faculty there, you are expected to have some research uh, focus um, and so I thought, well, I want to do, you know, I've always been interested in helping women. Let me, let me uh, choose women's health as the place of, of study. And so I thought I'll look at how women's health is affected in acute conditions. So in the emergency department. And as I started to explore that and discuss things and look for mentors, it became apparent that everyone thought I meant obstetrics and gynecology. Um, there was this uh, automatic assumption that women's health um, was equivalent to our reproductive uh, value, and I thought, well, that's that seems a little bit reductionist. Um, and, and I was wondering, is that because women are actually identical to men in all the other ways? But then at that point in time, the literature in cardiovascular care started to showcase that women can present differently with heart attack. And so I was looking at, okay, why is that the case? And there were theories that women's hearts, muscles were smaller and their vessels were smaller and they developed disease differently. And so I thought, well, if that's the case, for that organ, what about our brains and our lungs and our stomach functioning and mm. and um, everything else? So I started to look into um, why is it that we don't know this uh, differences between men and women, um, and then I looked into it um, the origin of how we we actually came to this. And you mentioned cardiac health there, and I wonder if we can start with that. You mentioned a young woman named Julie who presented in the emergency department one day. Can you tell me what happened with her? Sure. It's it's really a classic case that I see over and over again, and um, which is that a female, typically younger than what you would think, so 40s, you know, and uh, or late 30s, 
um, can present with um, symptoms uh, of, of chest discomfort. Most women uh, don't um, describe the classic symptoms that we've been taught of a big crushing chest pain and, you know, the classic elephant sitting on your chest and it radiating down your left arm. Women will often say it just doesn't feel right. Um, their, in, their intuition is telling them that something is wrong, but uh, they don't recognize it as something serious because um, we're taught to you know, be concerned when we have this crushing chest pain. So women will, will delay seeking care or they might go to an urgent care center or other emergency departments or primary care doctors. And everyone's thinking this could be their reflux, you know, a little bit of um, gastric acid or it could be their asthma or it could, could be lots of things, but um, not really thinking that this could be a heart attack um, because uh, even physicians have been trained to look for male patterns of heart attacks. So women get passed over and have a delay in care when they actually are presenting with the way that women present with heart attacks. And so, um, you know, lots of these women needs an advocate or need someone to think that, geez, you know, even though this doesn't seem like what we are always used to looking for, we should actually look to see if this is a heart attack in this female. And it's a similar situation with stroke, isn't it? Yes. So, I mean, we know a lot more about differences between men and women in cardiovascular disease since we've been looking at it for so long. But we are finding that, you know, we are talking about how blood vessels develop disease and what organ they supply. So a heart attack is the blood vessels that supply the heart develop disease in different ways between in men and women. Well, it's the same thing. It's the blood vessels that supply blood to the brain and how they respond differently and how they can present differently. Um, a lot of women have um, uh, headaches with stroke, and we weren't taught that a headache should be painful. A lot of women have vague symptoms of numbness or um, dizziness, and uh, and because they are considered vague, they are often missed because we have been taught to recognize a particular paradigm, and that paradigm has been completely based on the male model. And when you say it's been based on the male model, I wonder if we can discuss a little bit why that is. I mean, it starts with, starts with is probably not quite the, the right phrasing, but when it comes to studies, frequently the subjects that they are tested on are not necessarily representative of the population, or historically they haven't been. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, that's really the, the, it is the crux of how this started, because as we began to really develop the scientific method and um, use evidence-based uh, treatments, um, there, um, there was a, around that time, women um, were part of some of these studies and they would get pregnant if they were in their reproductive age. And then they would discover that perhaps this uh, drug that was being tested um, was a teratogen, which meant that it, they um, developed birth defects. And so there was this real uh, paternalistic movement to protect women. Uh, to make sure that this would never happen. And that was meant to, you know, be a positive thing for women. But what happened was at the same time, researchers realized that 
This was actually very convenient because women have a uh, menstrual cycle rotating different levels of estrogen and other hormones. And sometimes that can affect the results of the study. And so at this time, it was really meant to simplify um, and show that uh, you know, two plus two equals four. So let's just take out all confounders and we'll just study men because their testosterone levels are basically um, much more consistent. And so women were just removed from the research pipeline. Uh, studies were done in male animals and male humans, and the results were applied to women and felt to be close enough but um, but we now are realizing that men and women are very different and our medical system did not recognize this or take this into account. And I mean, there's one figure that you cite, which is um, a 2011 uh, assessment, which found that only 37 percent of participants in in these clinical trials that were looked at were were women but but even more shocking than that was that 64 percent of the studies that were looked at in this this survey didn't specify the results by sex and didn't uh, didn't explain why sex was ignored which is really quite staggering. Exactly. It's And it's still like that. Um, so I've done some research where we've looked at uh, emergency medicine literature to see how well are we at enrolling both men and women and how well are we at uh, stating who was enrolled in the study. This is getting better and better because we're trying to have people recognize the importance of this. But most of the time, it was just described as subjects. So there were a hundred subjects uh, enrolled in this study without even describing who those subjects were. Were they men? Were they women? And so now we're realizing it's not only important to state who was enrolled, because well, we want to be able to generalize the, that outcome to a certain population. And so if we enrolled 100 white males, well, that's, the, that's important to me because I, I care for white males. But the result of that study, I now need to know who can I generalize that result to? I can generalize that result to white males. Um, so now we, 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 we're realizing that it's not just about including women. So say if, I, if a study wanted to enroll 50 men and 50 women, and it's not just about that. You, you cannot combine those results. You have to study, you have to include both men and women and then analyze the results based on that sex. So you look for a sex difference. You don't just combine because now what we're seeing is studies that have combined, sometimes you can have a positive effect in men and a negative effect in women. And when you combine them, it will cancel that effect out. So, so it's really fascinating to actually discover when you look at, you know, if you repeat a study um, that was done before and you include women and you analyze it separately, the results are different in very critical ways. And it's, it's really interesting because, I mean, as we've discussed, it's significant when it comes to recognizing, for example, symptoms of different illnesses. But 
as you just touched upon, this is also drugs that can have positive and negative effects on people. And one reason is our metabolism. And, and what's so interesting is everyone, you know, everyone knows there's different alcohol guidance for women and for men for the amount of alcohol that we're meant to consume. And this is because we metabolize alcohol differently. But as you write, you know, our metabolism wasn't doesn't exist so that we can drink alcohol. But in fact, it comes relevant with all sorts of things like how we metabolize drugs. Can you explain just sort of in layman's terms how sex makes a difference when it comes to how we metabolize drugs? Sure. And it's so interesting. In my medical school, I think that example of alcohol, uh, I noticed that the recommendations for the amount of alcohol men and women should drink were different for men and women, and that women should drink less because um, they metabolize it differently. And I, I, and that was it. That was the one sex difference I received during my medical education. And I often wondered why, like, what was the reason that that the metabolism was different and um, and it was just brushed off. And so now, of course, I have a, a greater understanding because if you think about, you know, from the moment you swallow a medication, um, your body uh, starts to break it down, it then absorbs it. That medication will have its action someplace and then your body starts to collect it again to excrete it. And we now know that every single part of that process, um, there are important differences between men and women. And it has major um, implications on safety and the efficacy or the toxicity of that medication. One of the great examples is with the sleep uh, aid medication, Ambien. You know, the original studies were done in men, and this drug has been out for 20 plus years. And what's interesting is the studies were done in men, but more women have sleep problems and sleep disturbances and insomnia. So it was prescribed more often to women. And then there was a realization that women were acting impaired in the morning. Uh, They were getting into car accidents and saying that they had taken this sleep medication that night prior and they felt you know sleepy and disoriented and it was having these consequences that you know i see life and death consequences from motor vehicle crashes all the time and so they realized that women metabolize that drug differently just like alcohol in fact it's probably related to the same enzymes and that when men and women were given the same dose of ambien that when you checked it four, five, six hours later, women had two times the serum concentrations compared to men, given the same dose. And so this was a truly a red flag. And it was the first time in the US that our Food and Drug Administration recommended that women be prescribed half the dose, so having a sex-specific dosing. And of course, if this is just one drug, what about all of our other pharmaceuticals? I mean, what about every single thing that's out there on the market? Did we test this in both men and women? And the answer is most likely no. And it isn't just in terms of symptom recognition and in terms of how we respond to drugs and treatments that sex comes into play, but there are also more kind of subtle nuance points, such as attitudes. I mean, we've all heard of kind of the sort of Victorian idea of female hysteria, 
And and yet a little bit of that attitude would appear to still exist within perhaps the male-dominated ranks of the medical profession. I mean, for for example, perhaps, I mean, I'd like to talk actually about PMS in, in a second, but perhaps if we start with IBS and the difference in how men reporting with IBS and women reporting with the IBS symptoms are are treated. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about that. Sure. It's something like irritable bowel syndrome. It's very similar to me than something like uh, fibromyalgia. But if we stick to something like IBS, as you mentioned, when women uh, present with discomfort or pain, there can often be an emotional component. And the expression of that emotional component is related to gender and what's accepted by society. So in general, women feel that, you know, they have this emotion and it's okay to express it, where in many cultures, men men do not express it. So if you have a woman with uh, IBS and she's um, in pain and she's anxious about the fact that she's in pain and she had to leave work and this is the uh, you know third time and um, she was blown off a couple other times possibly um, that there's going to be this emotional uh, overlay to that whereas the male in the next room um, is is usually stoic and uh, and doesn't usually see seek medical care as often as women. And so there tends to be this, you know, implicit bias that the male would have an objective uh, reason for this pain. And the woman, well, she was here three times already. And so um, if they couldn't figure it out, I'm not going to figure it out. And, uh, and she seems a little bit anxious. It's probably her anxiety. And then, you know, I think the physician is then left with um, looking for clues and going to the medical record and seeing that she has listed there a history of anxiety and and perhaps that this is an anxiety reaction. It just seems to be a place to go to try to help that woman, but it does. It, it runs sort of deep. And the result is that they're, they're less likely to be referred for tests for irritable bowel syndrome, as well as other conditions like autoimmune conditions and um, neurological disorders, which which seems astonishing. When it comes to pain, particularly in the context of PMS, women's pain has a history of being, I suppose, neglected or minimized. Can you tell me what your research into how the sexes experience pain differently, what that's shown you, and also particularly what that means for conditions like PMS? Pain is very uh, interesting and complex, and there's some wonderful research um, going on right now that's that's trying to tease apart these the differences between men and women because, you know, pain is a great equalizer. It's it's the most common reason people seek care in the emergency department. Um, but there's there's the biology of pain. So we're we're discovering that men and women may have different. Uh, um, inflammatory cells may have different pathways to uh, telling the brain that there's a painful situation going on, um, which I think is is astonishing because um, there's some animal research that shows that if if certain cells are blocked, that we um, that tell the brain that there's a painful situation going on, um, that that. That pain, that block was um, was there in male animals and not in female animals. And we've we've developed our pain medication 
um, based on the knowledge of the pathway of how men develop pain. So it's not just different ways of the uh, biology and physiology that men and women experience pain, but it's also then our treatments um, may not be uh, the right fit for women. And so um, women end up um, are given pain medications that don't, that don't work and have uh, different side effects that we weren't expecting in, in men. Women are also given um, anti-anxiety medications more often uh, than pain medications when seeking care for pain. Um, and that has to do with the, the cultural um, expression of pain for women. So it's mostly seen as, oh, it's, you know, even if they come in with a broken arm, um, they, you know, they're more likely to be given uh, anti-anxiety medications. And I always teach my, my students, she's probably anxious because she's in pain. And so let's treat the pain and I'm sure the anxiety will be improved. But what's happened is there's a lot of conditions that are specific um, to women that do not have a good diagnosis, that are very painful. Women are more prone to painful conditions like migraine headaches, like fibromyalgia, like endometriosis, you know, the irritable bowel, the TMJ, all of these things, because we haven't really studied those. They, they're more common in women, and so they haven't had enough attention, enough research, because we've been looking at conditions that men suffer from. And so I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done instead of just lumping these conditions into female problems or related to their menstrual cycle. You know, and just, just, just on that note, I also find it very disturbing when, that, you know, throughout our history... We've just been told, oh, you're, it's your menstrual cycle, so you should just suffer. And people have some very painful conditions that flare up around their menstrual cycle. And, you know, we've just sort of brushed off these things as things that women have to deal with. And um, I just, you know, really want to advocate that these things need to be looked at in a very medically rigorous uh, research way. And on that note, I just want to read out a little uh, section of the book where you say, not to sound glib, but if men had to undergo a cycle of testicular pain every month, you bet there would be validation research and new meds produced for them. Just like erectile dysfunction became ED and got its own sleek blue pill, men's monthly testicular pain would get an acronym and a designer pharmaceutical solution, along with support groups, television ads, the works. That sort of sums it up, really. <laughs> I mean, it does. I, I can't help. I try to be, because I really feel as though that when we take sex into account, biological sex, we are going to get good care for both men and women. We mm. just have a lot of catching up to do for women. You know, like most of our medical care is based on men. And we need to just put a little bit more attention right now to, to, to understanding women. I mean, if men had a, a monthly painful condition related to their testicles, I'd always have this envision of this place that they could go and get hooked up to IVs and watch TV and their sports and, you know, these comfortable chairs and, you know, have all this support for it. And so I, you know, I, I do think that this is just good science. It will be good science, but, but we, we have some catching up to do for women. Can I turn to you and ask you a little bit of background about yourself? What was your childhood like and what first made you interested in uh, the sciences and in medicine? 
I grew up uh, in Rhode Island, actually, where my home state is now. And I had a just a lovely, supportive childhood. Um, my father was a police officer, a state police officer. And I just always looked up to um, him and his uniform. And, and he worked long hours and he, he, he was just providing service to our, our community. And, um, and at that same time, my mother worked for our pediatrician in his office. And um, I really enjoyed visiting her there and seeing the medical side of, of the system. And I thought I wanted to have some sort of service and, and I, I loved science and, and I asked a lot of questions. I was that child that was quite annoying at times um, by asking, why is the sky blue? So I just took that and thought I wanted to be a physician. And, you know, I, there are no physicians in my family. It, I was the first one and um, it was just something I had to, I had to be. And from a very early age. And so I worked very hard at just studying and trying to make it through the rigorous process. Um, but I never had a plan B. This was always what I was supposed to do. And when you were working through the various academic institutions that you need to pass through in order to become a physician, were you in male-dominated environments, and did you experience sexism? Definitely male-dominated environment. Um, when I was going into medical school, you know, now medical school is about 50-50, so um, a lot of women are getting accepted into medical school now than, than ever before. There's a problem with the leadership pipeline, you know, um, from from then from that point on. But um, but when I was uh, applying, I was definitely uh, was not fifty fifty percent. And then I wanted to be emergency medicine physician. I loved the emergency department. It was the uh, it was like that other face of um, what my father saw as a police officer. He was like. In, you know, in the community, and I liked the community atmosphere of the emergency department. You work really with as a team with um, nurses and techs, and I mean everything. You, you, it's not a one physician sitting at a desk writing uh, prescriptions out. It was always exciting, and it was my definition of being a doctor. If something hurts, you go in, and I can fix it. But when I was applying for residency at Brown University, I was a medical student and I was went to go shadow there to, to take a look at it and to apply. And there was one full-time female faculty member um, in the Department of Emergency Medicine at that time. And so it was a completely male-dominated field. It was thought it's a tough place to work and it was, you know, very testosterone-fueled environment. And so I've enjoyed working with uh, other female colleagues to help change that. And so now we have a department that is at least a third women, and um, we have lots of support groups, and we're helping to change that sort of paradigm. And in terms of becoming someone who writes books and, and gives talks, I mean, you've, you gave a, a hugely popular TEDx talk, Why Medicine Often Has Dangerous side effects for women and it's been viewed well over a million times have you always had that confidence with communicating are you unbelievably articulate and as we we discussed a little before we started recording you managed to convey these 
extremely complicated medical and scientific concepts and very, very easy to understand and, and, and also, you know, enjoyable paragraphs. Where did that side of your career come from? Thank you for that. That means a lot to me. I really learned how to translate complex medical knowledge and it's it's really its own language. It can be, you know, it's common sense once you once you realize this is just a, a different language. Because working in the emergency department, every time I walk into a new room, you know, I pull that, that curtain and I looked and I see there's someone different and they have a different education and knowledge base and they need different things from me and they need them said in different ways. And so I find that I'm, I use my intuition to quickly see how can I say this so that they can understand and um, and so working with that throughout my career, I have been able to practice that particular skill set, translate that to a large audience for a TEDx talk. That was that that was a different <laughs> experience. I was clearly um, nervous um, because that's the type of audience where you have so many different people with so many different backgrounds and understandings all in the same room. And so I really tried to work to send my message um, in a way that um, at least everybody could uh, walk away with something. And, um, and I think, you know, um, because that was so successful, it really helped me um, continue to share the message to both lay people and, and people in science and medicine. Do you get nervous with that kind of thing? Not, not really anymore. You know, every time you do it, it's just, it becomes one more um, time where you really don't get nervous. What I find during this pandemic is I can't read the room. There's, you know, we're on the internet and it's hard for me to engage and use my intuition. And so I'm, it's been a new learning curve over the past uh, you know, month to, to do these Zoom calls and some of these webinars, um, because I, I, I've, I've lost that sense of connection. And so it's been challenging. I think everyone has that problem. I mean, work Zoom calls are, you know, you're always worried that you're going to sort of talk over the person who's more important than you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that brings me to um, one of my final questions. And and I appreciate I've taken up quite a lot of your time, so I, I won't detain you much longer. But what has it been like? publishing this book into this pandemic? I mean, has it been disappointing? Because presumably you were pretty excited for it being out there. I Oh, I was. I, this, this book has been in my mind since I did the TEDx talk. And, you know, a, a book sits in your, your mind. I'm sure lots of your um, other authors that you've had, it takes a while to actually start to put pen to paper. And then to have a final product, you know, I'm just thrilled to, to share it and have these conversations. And I did. I had, um, you know, promotional several weeks of travel and uh, both to the UK and throughout the US that I was looking forward to. And then just to have it all canceled just like that was challenging for me. And whenever I would start to feel a little sorry for myself, I saw so many people go through so many more serious things uh, related to this pandemic that I quickly thought, this is nothing compared to what other people are going through, to be frank. And so that sort of helped me just um, put it into a space of we'll um, see what happens. And what what I've noticed is that 
with all of this attention to this COVID-19 and the unfortunate situation of having a two times mortality rate for men, there's actually been some attention paid to the, uh, the role that biological sex can have in, uh, in one viral infection. So um, I think what's happened is it's shown the world that taking sex into account is not just a woman's health issue that this is something that can be very important and critical for both men and women. And so with that knowledge base and with that attention to this situation, I think that hopefully it will make a more lasting uh, impression and that as we are fast-tracking drugs and vaccines and all of these pharmaceuticals and treatments, we need to really do this right in the present state. So uh, enrolling both men and women and analyzing the study based on these differences. And hopefully this will uh, be the, the type of force, you know, the type of necessary attention to, to make lasting change so that women can, can receive better care. Yes, it is interesting that it's taken a, a, a something that affects men um, more severely than women for, for it to um, bring the idea of sex differences in, in medicine to the fore. But perhaps perhaps a conversation for another time. Look, thank you so much. Uh, I've, I've loved speaking to you. You've been completely fascinating. You've covered so much, um, so succinctly as well. Um, before I totally let you go, if I could just ask one final question, which I ask everyone. Uh, who comes on, which is, if you could go back and give your younger self uh, one piece of advice, what would it be? It would be to keep going. You know, I feel as though my journey has been blessed with this feeling that I need to send a message that I, I, I needed to be a doctor. It was, you know, I needed to be an emergency medicine doctor. I needed to help women. I I discovered this understanding of the biological sex as being something that has affected the health of women everywhere. And as I started to really make that call out and, and start to discuss it, people thought I was crazy. They, they really did. And, um, and now we're at the point where it's, it's, it's just good science. So I really feel as though I've been put on this earth to create uh, something. And so all that time of studying and worrying and wondering whether I was going to make it, um, I would just tell myself that, you know, just keep, keep with your intuition. That's a good piece of advice to end on. Alison, thank you so much for your time. And to everyone listening, Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What We Can Do About It is out now. So thank you very much for listening to the Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Azania. And Alison, you have a website and social media accounts that people can refer to as well. I wonder if you would like to share them. Sure. People can find me on my website, alisonmcgregormd.com. And then also connect with me at Twitter. So it's at McGregorMD. And thank you so much for having me. This was really an enjoyable conversation. I can talk about this forever, but um, this is a nice way to wrap up. So thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored to be here. I'm so thrilled. I'm so thrilled. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed it just as much. So until next week, thank you very much for listening. Take care and goodbye.